seated. Church family, I thank God for you. Your presence here today is a great encouragement to my soul. Before I pray for us, read the scripture, I want to ask you for a special measure of patience and grace with me today. I've not been feeling well, and as you can tell, my voice is probably super annoying. I have to endure that for about the next 30 minutes. So I hope, don't, I hope I don't test your grace and patience as listeners too much. If I have to cough or sneeze or blow my nose, you will also have to show patience with that. And all of that is not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that I would not make sense or these sentences would just be gibberish. Uh, I am on a concoction of medications right now that I have no idea if my words are uh, making sense. And all of these medications I'm taking in direct defiance of the warning labels. I did not consult my doctor, even though I think I have every ailment they listed on there to consult your doctor before you take this. I did not. And, and I have sucked on so many cough drops that everything tastes like cough drops, no matter what I eat or drink, and my mouth is numb from it. But I'm here, and I thank God you are as well. Let's pray together. Father, in my weakness, I pray you would show yourself to be strong. Your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for all of us. And your power is made perfect in weakness. And I pray that you would once again show yourself to be strong and trustworthy and faithful as the God who is sovereign over every, every single detail of all of creation, including infections and sinuses and rogue cells. Oh God, we trust you this morning for every detail of our lives. You are in control. You are on the throne. You are indeed the potter. We are the clay. And so would you mold us, would you shape us, would you have thine own way? Lord, I thank you for the strength to stand here before your people, and I'm crying out in desperation for your help and for your grace. If ever I needed you, it's now. And so, Lord, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless the preaching of your word? that you might accomplish your purpose for your people on this day, for the glory of your name, for the praise of your character and your glory among the nations. Oh God, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' great name, amen and amen. Go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 9, the divine 9. Our text this morning is Romans 9, verses 19 through 29, but I'm going to back up and read starting in verse 14 so that we can get a running start into the text. So Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. 
These next few minutes are going to be the best part of this sermon as I just read God's word over us. Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the authoritative word of our creator. May he mold us according to its truth. To recap the point from last week, at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, Paul is teaching the truth that God's word has not failed because God has total freedom to save whomever he wants. And if God saves whomever he wants, that means he can also harden whomever he wants. Salvation is not based on ethnicity or privilege. Salvation is not based on morality or good works. Salvation is based totally, solely, always, only, and ever on the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is God. And he shows mercy to sinners for his glory. And Paul answers the objection that that makes God unfair or unjust. Paul says God is not unjust because he showed mercy to some. The example he used last week was Pharaoh. 
God raised up Pharaoh in order to proclaim his name in all the earth. And raising up Pharaoh included hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's exactly what Pharaoh deserved. Because Pharaoh hardened his own heart toward God. God gave him over to his hardness of heart. God gave him to what he wanted. The reason God is not unjust to show mercy to some is because all deserve God's condemnation. The reason it's not unjust to show mercy to some is because all deserve God's condemnation. You see, by definition, God's mercy is His goodness and salvation to those who deserve His wrath. So as we noted last week, if anyone is lost, the blame is totally theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit is totally God's. And so Paul answers that first objection of unfairness in God. But then in verse 19, Paul raises another objection, an objection he knows will come. The objection is this. If God has sovereign freedom to save or harden whomever he wants, then how can he still hold humans accountable? How are we responsible for our actions if none can resist his will? This is the age-old objection of divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. Can God hold people accountable for the decisions that he himself makes? That's the objection Paul anticipates in verse 19. And Paul answers this question by pointing to who God is and what God has revealed about himself. Paul shows us here the glory of our God. You see, most questions and concerns and perplexities about these very hard truths that we're looking at in Romans 9, most of these perplexities and mysteries will be solved or at least put in their place when we see and treasure and know the glory of our God. Our big God is the answer to the questions that trouble us. Our big, huge, sovereign God is the answer to the concerns that trouble us. When we think too highly of ourselves and our opinions and our sense of right and wrong and fair and unfair, and when we think too little of God and His opinions about what is right and, uh, and not right, that's when our theology gets distorted and our zeal gets quenched. And so may God open our eyes that we might behold how wonderful and awesome He is. May He set our eyes on Him and not on us. And so Paul answers this objection about divine sovereignty and human responsibility with three truths about God. Why is it right for God to judge people even though He's the one ultimately responsible for who gets mercy and who gets destruction? And Paul answers in three ways, three truths about God. Number one, Paul says God is the potter with rights over his clay. God is the potter with all the rights over his clay. And so Paul's first response is that God is God and we ought to submit to him as such. That's Paul's first answer. Look at verses 20 and 21. He's answering the question, why does he still find fault? Why does he still condemn? 
And Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? You see what Paul is doing? He's basically highlighting the vast difference between us and God. The vast chasm between creature and creator is a reality that needs to rest heavy on our questions and on our sense of fairness. Paul reminds us that we are mere man when he asks, but who are you, O man? Remember who you are. Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. In other words, don't forget who you are before this holy and awesome God. We are the ones molded. We are not the ones who mold. We are the clay. We are not the potter. Think for a, diff- for a second about the difference between something that is made and its maker. Imagine a piece of art talking back to the artist, questioning his artistry. What if a pot question the potter's purpose. It's ridiculous. It's silly to even think of such, and yet that is what Paul says we do when we question our God. God is the potter, and he, of course, has all the rights to do what he wants with his clay, and the pot has no right to answer back to the potter. Now, is Paul saying that we as creatures should never ask God any questions at all? Is this a rebuke of any and all questions about why God does what he does? I don't think so. I think there is a big difference between genuine, humble questions and hard-hearted, sinful questioning. You see, I think God welcomes Faith-filled questions from his people, but God will not be questioned. You see the difference? You see, ask God any question you want. Listen, he is a big God, and he can handle our toughest concerns. You don't have to worry. I don't have to worry that God hasn't thought about our concerns. He, in fact, made us with a mind after his own image. He wants us to think deeply and learn through genuine questions. I would argue that humble questions are attractive to God. He welcomes them. He wants you to come to him with them. But never, ever sit God down and say, if you don't answer the question in the way that I think you should answer it, then I'm not going to trust you. In other words, don't put God on trial And that's the attitude I think Paul is rebuking here. Someone who thinks they know better than God and are interrogating God as to to so that they could be his counselor. This is referring to someone who wants to reverse roles with God, right? They want to be the potter and they want to shape God into their own image. They want to reverse roles with the creator, They want to be the potter and shape God as their clay. May it never be. We are the clay. We are the molded. We are the pots created by a potter. And so may we ever approach God in humility, understanding the vast difference between us and Him. Listen, God has the right as the potter to make whatever He wants out of His clay. 
And he owes us no explanation at all. He has all the rights as the potter. And we know that God is never unjust and never unloving in his shaping and in his creating. This reminds me of the ending of the book of Job, where God says to Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Like, did you measure it all out with me? Did you fling the stars into the sky? Did you command the morning to come? Did you father the rain? Did you feed the lions? And after several chapters of, that, of those kinds of questions, the Lord says, Job 40, verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And Job's response is where we must all land in relation to our God. Job said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm going to shut my mouth now and let God be God. And so the first way that Paul answers this objection is to just point out that the potter has the right to shape his clay into vessels for different purposes. God has the right to shape sinful humanity according to both his wrath and his mercy. And this doesn't discourage honest questions. Bring those to God. This is rebuking prideful questioning that lacks faith and trust in the Creator. God is the potter with rights over His clay. Here's the second way that Paul answers this question of why can God still condemn? He says God is making known the riches of His glory. Why does God still find fault? Why does He still condemn even though He's sovereign over salvation? Well, God is making known the riches of His glory. So what Paul is doing is now that he's established who has authority, God, he now starts to give answers to the actual question. Why does God condemn even though he's sovereign in salvation? I think verse 23 is as close of an ultimate answer to the question of why God allows evil to exist And why he didn't just decide to save everyone. Why are some chosen and not all? That's a question that comes to my mind. Why why didn't God choose everyone? Why didn't God create a world where evil was not even possible? Where everyone just loved and worshipped him as he deserves? See, these are huge questions, big questions, and we could give a lot of sort of various answers to sort of point at what this, how, we, how we might answer that, but I think Paul's answer here might be the most foundational answer we are given in Scripture as to why evil exists, why God didn't and is not choosing everyone. And so verses 22 and 23 I think are super important for us to grasp. And so let's read them again and consider them carefully. Notice what Paul says. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, 
has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Whenever a passage of Scripture gives a purpose clause, pay really careful attention to that. So a purpose clause shows intent, the, the intent of some reality. In this case, Paul is showing the intent of God's actions. So in verse 22, it tells us what God has done. God has endured vessels prepared for wrath with much patience. Okay, so that's what God has done. He's endured vessels prepared for wrath with great patience. Why has he done that? Verse 23 says, in order to, so that's the purpose clause, Why did God do that? Verse 23, Paul is giving us the reason that God shows His wrath and power toward vessels heading to destruction. Why does He endure them? Why does He endure them? Why didn't God either, one, just not create them at all? Or two, why doesn't He just consign them to hell the moment they rebel against Him? Why does He endure with patience vessels of wrath? Verse 23 is the purpose. Paul says, because God desires to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. The reason for vessels of wrath is to show His glory for vessels of mercy. So showing mercy is uppermost for God. Showing mercy for His glory is what's uppermost in the actions, intent, and purpose of God. Why does He endure vessels of wrath? So that He can display His glory by showing mercy to vessels prepared for glory. God desires to show His wrath and power because this is part of His character as God. He must display wrath. He must display power. But what God really wants, according to verse 23, is in wrath to display His mercy. What does this mean? What does this mean? This means that His glory in mercy towards sinners would not shine as brightly without the contrast of His wrath. His wrath serves to highlight and spotlight His mercy. So God's ways are unsearchable, and there is certainly mystery in these truths. But I think what God is saying is that vessels prepared for destruction make the good news of His mercy toward His chosen all the more clear and sweet. Kind of like when you go to a jewelry store. They display the diamonds and the gold against a black velvet background. Why do they do that? Because the diamond shines brighter, right, against the the darkness. You can see it better. The edges are clearer in contrast to the black. Well, in a similar way, because we see His wrath and condemning sinners, we are all the more thankful to be vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Like if God saved everyone, there would be no contrast. 
There would be zero contrast and thus, according to verse 23, lesser glory for God. Why didn't God just save everyone? Because I imagine if he did, there would be no thankfulness. Because I imagine if he did, why why would we care to live for him if just everybody was chosen? You see, we see his glory clear. The edges shine brighter because there, there are vessels prepared for destruction. Now listen, this shouldn't surprise those of us who know our Bibles. You see, the Bible is clear that God does everything he does. Why? For his own glory. We can answer any question that begins with why does God with for his glory. Any and all question that starts with why does God can be answered with for his glory. God always acts according to his own character. And his ultimate mission is always to display that character for all of creation to see. Remember last Sunday, I pointed you to the end of this section of the book of Romans in chapter 11, verse 36. Remember how all of this ends, 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Remember the passage above in chapter 9, verse 17 about Pharaoh? Why did God raise up Pharaoh, and why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? What does verse 17 say? For this very purpose I've raised you up. What purpose? That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Both the predestination of true believers and the reprobation that is the passing over of vessels of wrath bring God glory. I'm just reading verses 22 and 23. That's what God says. Both the showing of mercy and the showing of wrath bring God great glory. Friends, if you are in Jesus this morning, thank God with zeal that he has done what verse 23 says he has done for you. He has prepared you beforehand for glory. This is awesome news. God's sovereign mercy in saving you is a great part of his glory and his beauty. And it means that you and I get to experience for all eternity the riches of his glory in mercy. And one of the reasons this is the best news in all the world is because this, if this is the reason for your salvation, if your salvation exists for the glory of God, the ultimate reality in the universe, then that means God's never going to go back on it. He's never going to pull it from you because he always does everything for his glory. And if your salvation, if your being shown mercy is for his glory, you can bet he is going to complete the work he started in you. If we are in Jesus, verse 23 says, God has prepared us from all eternity to be his vessels of mercy that make known his brilliance. If you're not a Christian here today, I wonder how all of this sounds to you. Just to make it as plain as possible, if you are a vessel of wrath, you are preparing yourself for destruction. 
As James, the brother of Jesus, would say, you are fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. The blame is totally yours. You are responsible for every ounce of God's wrath that you experience because of your rebellion against God. But how does this news land on you that God has vessels prepared for glory? Like, don't you want to be part of that group? And the only way to be a vessel of mercy is through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. Listen, you can be a vessel of mercy if you embrace Jesus as your only and all-sufficient Savior and Lord. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus who makes vessels of wrath into vessels of mercy for his glory. The reason God judges sinners is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's what verse 23 says. And here's the third and final answer that Paul gives to that question of why God still judges. Number three, God is accomplishing his revealed plan. God is accomplishing what he has revealed as to be his plan. So in response to this question of why God still judges, even though he's sovereign in salvation, in verses 24 through 29, Paul points to the fact that God foretold these things long ago. Paul continues to saturate everything he says in this section in the Old Testament scripture. Paul says, in showing mercy and in hardening, particularly among the Jews, God is doing what he always said he would do. He is accomplishing his revealed plan. And so notice verse 24 finishes the thought of verse 23. Who are these vessels of mercy prepared for glory? Paul says, even us whom he has called, both Jews and Gentiles. I love this. Paul includes himself here with his, with his readers as vessels of mercy. He says God has sovereignly called us to be included in this great plan of salvation. We are the called out ones who have been prepared for glory. We are the new covenant community through whom God is accomplishing this plan that he has revealed from all history. Now, the key in this context is Paul's comment that vessels of mercy are not only Jews, but Gentiles also. God's plan of salvation is not just for the Jews, Paul says. God is always planned to include Gentiles as vessels of mercy. So not all who are physically Israel are part of true Israel. True Israel, God's chosen people, also includes Gentiles. And then what Paul does here is he quotes from several Old Testament prophecies about the inclusion of Gentiles in the salvation plan. Paul's point in these quotations, which he'll flesh out more in chapters 10 and 11, is that God's plan has always been to rescue many Gentiles and a remnant of physical Israel. Many Gentiles and a remnant of physical Israel. So in verses 25 and 26, notice Paul quotes two texts from Hosea about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then in verses 27 through 29, he quotes two texts from Isaiah about the reduction of the sons of Israel who were given salvation. Not all Israel, but only a remnant. So these two texts from Hosea 
Remind us of how God showed love to his people through Hosea's adulterous wife. They had three children, Hosea and his adulterous wife. And each of the children that they had, their names symbolized a prophecy that God was giving. It actually symbolized God's judgment on the northern uh, tribes of Israel. The second child that Hosea and his wife had was named Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. Because God said, I will no longer love the house of Israel. The third child was named Lo-Ami, which means not my people, because God said, you are not my people, and I am not your God. However, the grace in the story of Hosea is that God promises to reverse that rejection. God pronounces judgment. God pronounces rejection on his people, and then he promises to reverse that rejection. And these are the texts that Paul quotes in verses 25 and 26. Look at them. This is from God's mouth. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now listen, Paul knows that these promises were immediately fulfilled for the people of Israel in Hosea's time, but Paul is making here gospel application in the inclusion of the Gentiles. Remember what Paul said in the book of Ephesians where he said Gentiles were separated from God. They were far off. They were strangers and aliens to the promise of God. But now a reversal has happened in the blood of Jesus. Those who were once not my people have become my people. Those who were far off have now been brought near. Indeed, Gentiles have been included in God's plan. This is a fantastic reversal by the mercy of God. The outsiders have been welcomed into the family. The strangers are now the beloved ones. They are the members of the family through the work of Jesus Christ and his tearing down of the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says this has always been God's plan. However, Gentiles have not just now become part of the people of God, but Paul also quotes from Isaiah here where he says that ethnic Israel has lost its special status. Isaiah says that only a remnant of Israel will be saved. The significance of these texts from Isaiah here is the contrast between the many and the few, the majority and the minority. The offspring of Abraham would be like the sand of the seashore. In other words, too many to number. Yet, only a relatively small number of ethnic Jews would be among those sand of the seashore people. See, this is the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 29. Out of Sodom and Gomorrah, how many people were saved? Not many. Lot and his two daughters, right? Everyone else was destroyed. Everyone else was destroyed. This plan to include a multitude of Gentiles and a relatively few Israelites is what Jesus himself was pointing to in Matthew 8 when he said this. He said, I say to you, many will come from the east and from the west 
that's intentionally not from the Jews, from the east and from the west, and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness. The point of these quotations is to show that God is keeping his saving promises to his church. This doesn't mean God has no plan for ethnic, no future plan for ethnic Israel. This just shows that God is building his church and the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. God's word has not failed because he is building his church with Jews and Gentiles in unity in Jesus. Again, salvation is not based on ethnicity, but faith in Jesus for anyone and everyone whom God shows saving mercy. This is why God judges, even though he is sovereign in salvation. Because his creatures are accountable for what he has revealed. They should have known his promises. They should have read his word. They should have submitted to his to his uh, will, to what he revealed about what he's going to do, as should we. Now, let me close with four quick application thoughts on this passage. Number one, resist the temptation to question God. Resist the temptation to question your God. Resist the temptation to tell God what he can and cannot do. I pray in my heart and in your heart there would be less interrogation of God and more your will be done. More have thine own way, Lord. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Second application. Hold tightly to both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Hold tightly to both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, the Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign over every detail of every one of our lives in all of the universe. He is completely sovereign. And the Bible teaches that we are responsible for our actions as humans. We should never try to play these two truths against each other. Spurgeon was once asked about how he reconciles divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and his response was, I don't try to reconcile friends. These two truths are friends, not enemies. These two truths go together. Like peanut butter and jelly. They are not opposed to each other. They are friends always. Number three. If you are in Jesus. Oh, and I hope you are. If you are in Jesus. Rejoice. That God has made you a vessel of mercy. And included you. In his family. If you're in Jesus, rejoice today that God has made you a vessel of mercy and included you in his family. According to verse 23, I've been prepared beforehand by God for glory, and I cannot take any of the credit for that. 
I've been included as a son of the living God, and there is nothing in me that I can boast in. My being shaped into a vessel of mercy is all for the glory and honor of the potter alone. He and he alone deserves the glory. Rejoice today in that. Number four, and finally, if you're not trusting in Jesus today, turn to Jesus before it's too late. If you're not trusting in Jesus Turn to Jesus before it's too late. Listen, verse 22 says that you are a vessel prepared for destruction. Outside of Jesus, you are a vessel prepared for wrath. And so I must warn you today that outside of Jesus, you are that vessel of wrath and payday is coming soon. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-centeredness and turn to Jesus Alone, he is the only Savior, the only Lord. And so I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you today, turn to Jesus now. Turn to him now. Father, I pray that those in this room who are not trusting in Jesus would run as fast as they can to Jesus. Open their eyes, open their heart that they might see Jesus as worth trusting and believing and banking all on. Oh God, open their hearts, open their eyes to let them desire to be vessels of your mercy who would experience the riches of your glory for all eternity. Lord, these are heavy truths. We thank you for revealing them to us because we have no desire to just dabble. We have no desire to live on the outskirts. We want to know you in all of your fullness. We want to go deep with you and who you are, and we want to submit ourselves totally and fully to you. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to submit ourselves and to rejoice today at what you've done through the work of Jesus to make us vessels of mercy. Father, all glory to you. Jesus, all glory to you. Holy Spirit, all glory to you. Triune God, you are worthy. I thank you for the strength that you have given to stand here and proclaim these truths. I pray you would use it, and I pray you'd accomplish your work. Thank you for your mercy that is more, that is greater than our sin. We thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen.